Ephesians chapter 2, if you'll take your Bible and turn with me there, we'll uh, begin our journey through this chapter. <clears throat> you know, as we have um, walked through the first chapter of Ephesians together, I hope it has become clear that God has an eternal set plan for redeeming people, for redemption. And the whole first chapter is dedicated, Paul dedicates that to teaching the high theology of redemption. He goes through the past work of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He goes through the present work that's taking place in the lives of those who are being redeemed through Christ. He goes through the present work and the future promise of the work of the Holy Spirit that He will guarantee to the day of salvation, all those who believe in Christ. So he puts forward in the first chapter this grand, sweeping, universal view of what God's doing to save mankind. Chapter 2, he steps back from the grand theme. He gets the microscope in a sense. He narrows his focus down. He begins to hammer away at a more specific application of that grand truth from chapter 1. He becomes very specific, very narrow, in talking to them almost personally as the church at Ephesus. We are looking in at what he told them as people outside of their culture, outside of their time. Yet the truths he taught the people at Ephesus are true for us today. They're no less true today. And so we're, we're bystanders kind of looking in, seeing second person what Paul said to these Christians at Ephesus. And here in chapter 2, we come face to face with one of the most grim portrayals of mankind in the Scripture. One of the most despicable pictures that can be painted. I never was much into them. They kind of came before my time in the 1970s. Zombie movies. Those were all the rave in the 60s and 70s, so I've been told. Maybe not for you. Uh, I looked at a list of the movies that brought in the most money back then, and zombie movies are on there. Okay? I, I don't get into them much. But they make for perfect a perfect example of the text we're talking about today. If you're here today, and you are outside of Jesus Christ... Paul says, you are a zombie. Your spirit is completely dead. It's not on life support. It's not sick with sin. It doesn't need some medicine. It is dead. Completely dead. And what was so scary about zombies, I guess, is they had no heart, they had no soul, they had no spirit. And so they were flesh... Walking around terrorizing people because they had no limits to the depths they would go to accomplish their will, whatever that was. That's the picture of all humans outside of Christ. Your spirit, your spirit is dead. Your soul is dead. You have no control over what you will do to reach your aim and your goal and your directive in life. The governor is broken. 
how did it get this way? Well, we read in the confession, and there's, there's purpose behind the madness here at a Grace Fellowship. We read in the confession that God created all mankind in Adam, perfect, sinless. And He put him in no less than an innocent and perfect garden. There were no sinners. There was no sin. He put him there, and then he tested all of the human race at one time in the person of Adam. As Aaron mentioned and alluded to, some people, and you may be one of them, think that's unfair. We're going to get to why that is so important in our theology that we believe. All of us were tested in Adam. You were tested. It's not that you, it's really not even that you would have failed. You failed. I failed. You sinned. I sinned with Adam in the garden, right there. All of us did. There's no exception to that outside of Christ, of those born of the womb of a woman. And so here we are, fallen. We got there because we were tested and we failed. We sinned. And what we deserved, based on the covenant of life which God had struck with Adam, He promised, all the children that know the catechism know this, He promised life. He promised happiness. He promised relationship in the covenant of life. And He threatened death. And God is not a liar. Nor is He a son of man that He should change His mind. When Adam sinned, death came on Adam and all of us because we all sinned in Adam. All of us did. We're all completely fallen. Now, now that's been expressed many ways throughout time. Augustine talked about depravity, and then Luther called it bondage, and then Calvin called it total depravity, and then Edwards said, no, and I think Edwards may be right, no, we're not bound, we're free. Every man is free to do exactly what he wants to do. The problem is in the want. All sinners want to sin. All sinners want to reject God. All of you without Christ here this morning, despise and hate God and everything that has to do with Him. You may put a facade on when you come in this building and sit under this preaching, and you may act all holy, and you may act all kind, and you may act all loving. You are a rotten sinner. Do not deceive yourself. You hate God, and you hate everything about His rule. That's what Edwards tells us. We're not bound to sin. We're free to sin. In our natural state, we do what we want to do. All we want to do is sin. All we want to do is sin. And so we have this passage in Ephesians 2. And we're going to walk through it step by step. And this is the grimmest, I think. This is the hardest. This is the most focused passage in the New Testament on what we are outside of Christ. Here it is, the first point in the first verse. All of mankind is dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says, and we, you, speaking to the Gentiles, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And you were dead. This word and is so important. Connecting words are so important. It is a continuation of the thought he has just presented to us in the first chapter. When he was praying for the people at Ephesus, look what he said. What is Paul's prayer for the church? I want that your eyes would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. What, is the, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? 
And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? What is so powerful about what He has done for us? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. If you want to see the power of God, it's not in a waterfall. It's not in the stars. It's not in the fact that the animal kingdom operates in the way it operates. It's not in the nations, so to speak, in the vague sense. The power of God is best displayed in the fact that He overcomes rotten sinners like me and you, and He saves us by His grace. Paul says the power of God is on display in the church. How? Because the church is dead in their trespasses and sins before they come to Christ. They are dead. They are dead. And it says in the end of the prayer, He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. And you, you see how He continues the thought. In the original, there are no chapter divisions. There are no verse divisions. This is a letter. So they would have heard it this way. He put all things under His feet so that He might be all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What are trespasses? Again, we're best to hear the definition of our catechism. Your children are being taught catechism for a reason. Take the little book and go through it with them. And talk about the answers. It tells us what is sin. Sin is, is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. And what is meant by transgression or trespass? Doing that which is against the law of God is an active way of talking about sin. Paul says you are dead in your actions. There's no excuse. Yes, you were born in sin, but you have further gone on to continue in sin. You've actively sinned. You've actively merited death. You've proven God to be right when He says, if you sin, you will die. And then he says, you're not only dead in your active sin, but you're dead in your sins. This word is a more general, and it catches the whole. You're not compatible with the law of God from your birth, and you therefore continue in sin in your action. Paul's covered both the active and the passive sin in this one verse. He paints the picture of mankind as completely sinful. There's no exception. There's no exception in this room today. There's no exception in this room. We're all, outside of Christ, dead in our trespasses and sins. Second, we see that all mankind is under the power of this world, Satan and the flesh. This comes to us in verse 2. This comes to us in verse 2. So we're all dead in our sins and our trespasses. But Paul's not done. He wants to paint the whole of the picture. So he becomes more grim in his description. Because, see, I, I kind of know, I, after having talked with many people about Christ, and having thought through these things for years myself, and made my own excuses about why I do the things I do, I, I understand that I'm a lot like Adam. I like to blame other things for my sin, not myself. So Paul starts with the very personal, you are dead, and you are a trespasser, and you are a sinner. But then he broadens, because he doesn't want to simplify too much. He broadens and says, but there's other layers to this thing. There's other layers to this fallenness. It's just not depravity, it's total depravity. It's not just fallenness, it's complete fallenness. It's radical 
It has affected everything, this fallenness, this sinfulness, this depravity that we're talking about. It's affected it all. All of creation has been wrapped up in the fallenness of sin. And so he begins to talk and he begins to explain the next level of our sin. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And by the way, just just so you know, if you do a word study on the word dead in the original, you'll find out what it means. Dead. Lifeless. That's what it means. There's, there's no way to exegete around what Paul's teaching is what I'm saying. There's no way to play, now you can try, but there's no way to, with integrity, play word games to make him say something he doesn't say. He's not saying, sinner, you're in the emergency room on life support, and if God doesn't do something, you're going to die. He's not saying, you know, sinner, you're a pretty good person. Except for those few things you do wrong, God can help you fix that. He's painting the grim picture of the reality that is us before Christ. You are a decaying, stinking, dead corpse. That's who you are before Christ. So my, another warning to you, just a warning to you, out of the love of my heart, if you're with me this morning and you are dead, you are not in Christ, you are dead, what I'm telling you is you can put all the fancy outer covering on you want to put on, but you can't hide your stench which rises before the nostrils of God. You can't hide it. You can play games with me, you can play games with your family, you can play games with your workmen, your fellow workmen, but you cannot fool and deceive the living God. When He looks at you, you're dead. You're dead. And what can a dead man do? Nothing is the answer. In relation to God, Edward says, we are dead. In relation to sin, we are alive. So what can a dead man do? The correct answer, he can do nothing to please God. and He can do everything to incur the wrath of God through sin. And so what I would say to you if you're without Christ this morning is, you're not only in trouble... You're past that point. You're under the judgment of God. You're under the condemnation of God. You stand in need of a Savior, not a helper. And so I can't say it any stronger. Paul said it very strongly. I'm just trying to explain it, trying to put some meat around it for you. So we don't just read past it in our text. We are completely dead and we are in need of God's grace. That's the picture he's painting. We're dead. And he adds to that layer by saying we're under the power of this world. Look in verse 2. In which you once walked, had your life, you, you, you carried out your everyday life is what that means. You dead corpses that are outside of Christ are carrying out your everyday activities, Paul says. Under the power, following the course, under the power of this world. You're, do, you're carrying out your everyday activities following the prince of the power of the air. So the world is against you, is against God, and you are a part of that world. Satan is against God, and you are under his control. And he goes further. The spirit that is now at work, 
in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once lived in the passion of our third category, flesh. So we are captivated by the power of the world, which is against God, the power of Satan, who is God's arch enemy, and we are in our own flesh rebellious against God. Did, did I warn you that this was a grim passage? There is no hope in verses 1 through 3. There's not even a beam of hope in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. If he put a hard period at the end of this chapter, at the end of these verses and called it a day, we would have no hope. The world. How is the world infected with sin? How has it been changed? Well, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 that through Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all have sinned. And then he goes a few chapters later into Romans 8 and says that the whole world has been enslaved to sin. Listen, not willingly. The creation didn't willingly sin, but God subjected the whole creation to sin on our account, so that at the end of the age He might deliver us and deliver the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this whole world, when I look out the windows here, and I see the beauty of the contrast of blue and green, when I see the beauty as I drive down the road of God's hills that roll along, as I, as I land in Texas and it's flat as a flitter, and I see all the differences of God's creation. I think this is a beautiful place. When God looks at His creation, He says, this is a twisted place. This world is twisted. The creation is twisted. The whole of creation has been impacted. The world is around us is corrupted with sin. And then He goes a step further. You not only walk according to the course of this world which is decaying all around you, and the systems of this world are falling apart all around you, and the plans of this world are capturing you in their web of deceit and lie and rebellion against God. It's not just the created order, but the whole world. All the systems we live in are broken systems. All of them. You give me the best, most pristine government in all of the world. You give me that government, and I'll show you that it's broken. In this world, it's broken. If you want to know the brokenness of the world system, take a drive this afternoon around the county and look at the poverty in which many of our brothers live. If you want to see the brokenness of our world system, go to the courthouse tomorrow and sit as an observer in a courtroom and hear of all of the all of the oppressive actions that are being taken by people in high places against those of the lowest esteem. The injustice that's being carried out. Not just here, but all around the world. Friday night I sat and watched the corruption of our world. I, 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 I love documentaries and I was watching a documentary on Liberia. Liberia is the fourth poorest country in all the world. Liberia was founded by the United States on Christian principles with a Christian constitution. 
It was named, its capital was named after President Monroe. It was thought of to be the example of good government. They have fought successive civil wars since 1990, all the way up to just a few years ago. Continual war. They not only fought a continual war, but they fought it on the streets, and they fought it between everyone from the age of about nine up. If you were a male, you carried a gun, and you shot one another. The world we live in, the systems of the world we live in are broken. They are sinful. Even at their best, they are not good enough. And Paul says, you are living under the power of this world system. Secondly, you live under the power of the prince of the air. Now this is Paul's way of explaining who Satan is. He doesn't come out and call him Satan in this passage, but we know that's who he's speaking of. He is the prince of the power of this air, of the air. Now, what does he mean? He means he's the prince of the power of the principalities and authorities and rulers which exist in the spiritual realm. He has carried off a rebellion. A third of God's angels have followed in this rebellion. Satan is not being painted here to be existing and, 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 and living in every place at every time. He's one created being, and he can only be in one place at one time. Okay? So if you think Satan personally attacked you last week, then he could only have attacked you. He couldn't have attacked everybody else personally. Alright? But what Paul seems to indicate here, look at what he says. He is the prince. If you're a prince, you have those who are under your charge of the rulers. He's the prince of the of the power of the air he has minions who do his bidding and there is a reality to the fact and we are often guilty of dismissing this in our circles there's a reality that exists that not only are the system of this world broken but the broken prince of the air is working against us and everyone who follows him would do nothing more, would have nothing more than to see you defeated and see the church at large defeated. And they're working continually to accomplish their task. He's not talking about possession here. He's talking about the general influence that Satan has over the world. And he's limited. Even here he's limited. The prince of the power of the air. He's not the prince of the heavenlies. He's the prince of this world. When he came to Jesus in, in the desert and tempted him, he took him on a high hill and he showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, if you will bow the knee to me, I will give you all of this. What Jesus refused to do was bow his knee to the lesser power. Satan could hand him for a moment the power of this world, but he could not give him Eternal authority over all the universe. That belongs to God. So he's painting Satan here in this passage as very powerful. But he's not the all-powerful God. He is only a prince who works along with the systems of this world to enslave sinners. And then finally, he turns his pen to speak to those who are under the spirit. You notice this word spirit? under the influence of the spirit of the power of this air that we live in, this universe we live in, Satan, his spirit, 
that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I've already told you, Paul's already said, all men are sons of disobedience. And so, not only are all men dead, but all men are under the power of this world, Satan, and their own flesh. Their own flesh. Third, we see in this first three verses, all of mankind are under the wrath of God because of the passions of their disobedient flesh. All of, the, all of mankind is under the wrath of God because of our disobedient flesh. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We, we all were carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And so, Paul does something here. It's important for the rest of our book, the rest of our book study, so I want to point it out to you. It's a side note, but it's very important. In the first verse, notice, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 3 he says, if you look at it, Among whom we all once lived. We all once lived. He did something there. He changed. Here's what he's doing. In verse 1 he says, And the Gentiles are dead in their trespasses and sins. And in verse 3 he says, And the Jews also were the sons of disobedience. In his way of saying it, it's all of mankind. The Jews had no room to boast. The Jewish members of the church at Ephesus had no room to boast. When he started in verse 1, I'm sure there were a few who kind of turned to their Gentile neighbor and, yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but he's talking about you. You Gentiles, y'all are wicked. Preach it, Paul. Tell them. But by verse 3, every mouth is closed. Because as they're nodding at their Gentile neighbor who needs to get saved, Paul says, We were also sons of disobedience. And we, Jewish people, we were under the wrath of God. The whole of mankind. That's what he's pointing out. And that's going to become very important for our next sex session. Section. Uh, not the one coming up, but the one after that. It's months away. Don't worry. I'll remind you of this note when we get there. But verses 11 through 23 only make sense if he's talking about Jews and Gentiles here. Because he's going to talk about Jews and Gentiles again. And he's going to paint the redemption of a new man. One new man. And the glory of salvation being that those rotten Gentiles and those rotten Jews that believe in Christ have been grafted in to one new existence, one new mankind, one sinless, perfect one. So, let's finish up. Verse 3. Among whom we all, we too, the Jews and the Gentiles, we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. The passions of the flesh are most rightly detailed to us in Romans chapter 1. 
They're idolaters that suppress our flesh. is an idolater that suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness and then follows into deeper and deeper sin. That's who we are. The passions of the flesh lead to sexual immorality, homosexuality, uncleanness, and total brokenness. Witchcraft, rebellion, disobedience, lying, all the like. You won't inherit the kingdom of God. That's Paul in Romans chapter 1. So when he says you were following the passions of the flesh, it's all of that. When you look at a sinner outside of Christ and you say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. You need to realize that you're walking on deadly territory. Your pride doesn't impress God. Because what he says to you in your spirit, through his spirit, I hope, is in conviction. You mocking a homosexual? If it weren't for my grace, you'd be a homosexual. You mock a drug addict, a guy that's down in the gutter, wallowing in his vomit. If it weren't for my grace, you'd be there. You turn your nose up as if you're better than an adulterer, someone who's had multiple affairs. If it weren't for my son and my grace, you'd be just like him. So what Paul does in verse 3 is he steps us down off of the pedestal of self-righteousness and says the only difference between you and those men are God and His grace. That's it. If it weren't for that, you'd be just like them. You're a son of disobedience, church, in your nature. You need to feel the weight of it. You don't need to read these verses and excuse it and say, but I'm not that guy. You are that guy. You are that woman. You are that child. And you're not that anymore only because of God's grace. Verses 4 through 10 are meaningless if you skip verses 1 through 3. You'll continue to deceive yourself and think you're a good person. Paul's saying to the church, to the church, to the church, and you were all dead in your trespasses and sin, and you, we, and you all walked according to the flesh. All of us did. He's saying that for a reason. Don't dismiss it. Don't jump to verse 4. Stay in verse 3 this week. Stay there. Feel it. Know it. Own it. Confess it. Repent of it. All week this week and come back Sunday and we'll celebrate God's grace. But let's don't jump past our, our evil, rotten nature. Because it's only grace if we're ungracious. It's only grace if we're rotten and broken. It won't make sense to you. If you just repeatedly read this letter and just jump over all the bad stuff to get to the good stuff, read the bad stuff, believe the bad stuff, confess the bad stuff, repent of the bad stuff, and then the grace of God will strike you like an arrow and pierce you to the mirror, and you'll fall on your face and worship Him like never before. Here, quickly, I know I'm, I want to get to this. We're children of wrath by nature. What? Listen, we sing about the love of God, and we need to, we're right to. But equal and parallel to His love is His wrath. We don't like to sing about it. And we don't like to talk to our neighbors about it. But God is a God of just wrath. 600 times in the Old Testament... God is said to be a God of wrath. Six hundred times. 
In the New Testament, there are two words used to depict this wrath. The first one meaning general anger and displeasure. And the second, the most used, meaning just righteous indignation. Guess which one's in our passage? We were under the just, righteous indignation of God. So I was explaining this to my children yesterday. Noah and Lily. I was trying to tell them. God is not like Daddy. He doesn't get angry and then He's okay. He doesn't get mad and scream, pitch a fit. And then make up for it. That's not God. God is progressively ripening in His wrath. What do I mean by that? Like a fruit on a vine. Years and years at the Garden of Eden, that fruit was small. And over the generations, the wrath of God has ripened. Grown bigger. Grown more intense. It has grown because of our sinfulness. He is storing up His just wrath for the sons of disobedience on the day of judgment. And it is ripening. It is growing. It is simmering. It is progressive. It is not a flash in the pan and then it's gone. This is not the picture of God being whimsical and angry like a little kid. He's controlled. He's purposeful. But He is wrathful. Wrath is a concept that you need to grasp as best you can. As much, we can say it this way, as much as God is love, He is equally wrathful. He is not confused like us. His characteristics are not twisted and convoluted and sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. They're parallel. They, they run perfectly like the colors of a rainbow. Each one runs next to the other without canceling the other out. And so if you want to sing about the love of God and really sing it, do a study on the wrath of God. Because as much as you feel the love of God today, if you're outside of Christ, you will feel the wrath of God in the day of judgment. What he's saying is, Paul is saying it clearly. You, as a child of disobedience, what you've earned is to reap the wrath of God, the ripened fruit of the anger of God. And it is just. It's just. There's times when I discipline out of anger, or I discipline out of disappointment, or I discipline my children in so many different ways. And it's not a good picture of God, and I have to repent of it. I have to go and tell them I'm wrong. And apologize. God never does that. When God enacts his wrath on a man or a woman or a child in judgment, it is perfect. Jeremiah tells us in the day of judgment, none will charge him with unrighteousness. So, lost man, woman, child, and those of us under the blood of Christ, I want us just for a moment to think about standing In his presence. And just for a moment to try to grasp the impact of being in his presence. 
not clothed in Christ. And I know what you're going to say. I said it. But I'm not as bad as that guy. That girl. And, and I love the ones we always go to. Aaron and I were talking about this yesterday. But we always want to run to Adolf Hitler. If we took a poll, everyone in here would vote. Adolf Hitler deserves the wrath of God. Jeffrey Dahmer hacks up little children and eats them. I vote yes. But what this passage is telling us is you and I are equally dead and equally under the wrath of God as anyone you pick. You pick them. You're just as dead and you're just as deserving of God's wrath today. Why? Because as I was sharing with Aaron, and as some of you know from personal experience and all of us know from watching those we love suffer, how many cancer cells does it take for you to be in grave danger? How many? Millions? Billions? It really takes one to go rogue. It just takes one cell. When it goes rogue, it begins to build and build and build and build to itself more cells. What God's saying is in the Garden of Eden, you may have thought eating a piece of fruit was a simple thing, but it was a cancerous cell. And over the generations, men have progressively become more cancerous. And you are dying, you're dead, and you are physically dying. And it's so much like that, isn't it, cancer? Because cancer is not a disease that we fight with an antibiotic. It's not a virus that's foreign to our body. It's not a bacteria foreign to us. Cancer is you. It is your DNA. It is your cell makeup. And it has twisted. It has morphed. It has, it has gone through a corruption. But it's you. And so to kill the cancer, you walk the thin line of killing the good parts. So if you try to kill the sin on your own, you're going to kill you. You can't do it on your own. You have no hope of beating it on your own. What you need is an outside influence. This is where the analogy becomes imperfect because... It, our treatments for cancer don't work a lot of the time. But if you could just, for a moment, think of it this way. We have to have an outside force act on us. The heat of Christ, the heat of Christ's, God's wrath, coupled with the injection of His righteousness into our veins, which is His righteousness still foreign to us, but... It's injected into us. And the knife of the Holy Spirit to carve out our cancerous sin, the three of them together bring relief. And it's the only hope that we have. You can't do it yourself. Someone will have to do it for you. And this someone is Christ. I don't want to leave you without any hope. I want you, I want you to know there's hope. And it's coming. We're going to preach about it. We're going to celebrate it. 
But right now, you need to really focus on you're cancerous. You're a dead man walking. And you need someone to act on you from the outside. How bad is it? It's terminal. What hope do you have in this world? None. What's the answer? Who is the answer? How will we be saved? Well, Paul wants to tell us. And I I want to talk about it next Sunday. Let's pray together. Father.